Case file number 2.6. DNS Dan. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Ymir, it's time for part two of DNS. Sweet. The DNS Dan tribute episode. Um, Dan Kaminsky, as I found out during doing the research to episode one, died on April 23rd, 2021, uh -huh. of complications due to diabetes. And we said in the last episode, this is going to be a little bit of a Dan Kaminsky's tribute episode. Well, we're going to talk about several things with about dns dan and his and his relationship to dns but this isn't everything that he did and we may end up doing another episode on the stuff that isn't related to dns that dan kaminsky did because he did right. some really cool stuff even outside of dns i learned of him initially going to black hat um going to black hat and defcon because uh i was lucky enough to start going in about 2004 ish and i was able to uh i had enough pull with a lot of employers to say that you know i'm going every year and even when i was yeah. kind of independent i went on my own dime and you know i encourage everybody to go to their local conventions even if you can't make black hat and defcon uh in las vegas all right yeah yeah so dan kaminsky did black hat for most of it um uh presentations going back to like 2003 2002 right and well after a few years he actually started bringing his grandma with him because you get when you're a speaker you get tickets to to let um friends and family see you speak mm -hmm. and she brought cookies oh that's awesome i mean you know typical what a grandma would do is exactly um so uh and uh, and so she would, they would give out uh, grandma's home home baked cookies uh, after each one of his black hat presentations. <laughs> and uh, the last Dan Kaminsky talk I went to, I think I was three years less elite than uh, than Dan Kaminsky's grandma in terms of the number of black hats I went to. <laughs> but morbid thought. Now I have a chance to catch up. You, you know his grandma has like just the wall of like badges oh yeah full on display people come over like what is all that like oh uh, yeah defcon badges you wouldn't you wouldn't know <laughs> you wouldn't know <laughs> apparently actually they my my uh sister-in-law uh who who works at a, at a at a major internet company gets some street cred because she comes with us to uh to Vegas for Black Hat, even if she doesn't actually go. <laughs> well, probably the the first biggish DNS thing, or at least 
important DNS thing that Dan Kaminsky did related to DNS um, was back in 2004, he did a presentation on, on tunneling data through DNS. Mm, okay. And he showed that using TXT record, you could easily encode large, uh, or well, not large, but like a few, uh, maybe a couple hundred characters of base 64 or base 32 encoded information. Yeah. Which ended up being the basis for what is known as the code word style of botnet uh, command and control. Botnet knows to make a query to some controlled name, gets a base 64 string back that can be a command. Mm, okay. So if you're doing a distributed denial of service attack, that kind of thing can result in target selection, for instance. It makes sense too to like use DNS because most people don't care if uh, yeah. you know that port is open and they just expect stuff coming in and out, you know, routinely. So yeah, actually one of the things that uh is pretty cool about what I'm doing currently at my at my current engagement is we're trying to use a couple of things, uh, including frequencies and lengths of um, of DNS query, common lengths of DNS query, in okay. order to uh, discover various beaconing activity. There are some some research about that, and we've we've been able to uh, because we consider DNS traffic really important. Um, been able to to identify at least a few things using that te those techniques. Oh, okay. The tools to use DNS have gotten better and better. Um, right. But a lot of organizations don't prioritize keeping that volume of, uh, of information because it's a, it can be a lot of events um, really quickly. It turns out that there's a lot of DNS traffic. I know, shocking. Yeah, yeah. And well, we won't get too far into some of the ideas behind that. Maybe we'll save that for episode three of DNS. <laughs> But uh, he also showed that you can do various tunneled, he, he demonstrated SSH tunneled over DNS along with streamed video over DNS using, using the same technique. Um, there's a lot of complexity in doing some of that because if you make a query for a, for a particular name, the time to live on that is going to, um, you can't use the same name twice at least within its time to live, because it's you know, all you're going to get is the cached answer back and not right. the original answer from the from the name server. Assuming you can't go directly, see episode one <laughs> of DNS. But a lot of these techniques prove to be some of the basis, some of the ideas behind some of the bot, botnet command and control methods used um, used going forward. So. DNS exfiltration is a real thing. You can base 64 encode information as a host name to a domain that is controlled by an attacker and that will exfiltrate actual information. Right. And you can use that in various ways as uh, botnet check-ins and stuff like that. There's some complexity in making that happen, but I mean, starting 2004 is when, when we started seeing the techniques of using DNS as command and control and how important it is to actually look at that stuff. Now, we'll probably do another episode in terms of or talking about some of the complex techniques, fast flux and, and stuff that, that make tracking down individual DNS or individual botnets using DNS harder and harder because if it's a single domain, that's easy to block. But uh, yeah, 
the modern world, and, and I, I should probably mention that in the modern world, some of that stuff is, uh, we're seeing similar techniques being used with uh, S3 bucket names. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't talk too much about that uh, because I have some proprietary information on how some of that was used um, in a relatively recent attack, but the technique stands. It's a question of whether or not your clients can get out to a, a destination that has a um, that they can always get to. Right, right. And nowadays, it's really hard to block S three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So that was it had some impact on the botnet, but it didn't break the internet. What he's most famous for, which you will read about in pretty much every article ever about him, is what some people call the Kaminsky bug. What I like to call the bug that broke the internet. <laughs> so the Basic idea of how it works is like, first we have to keep in mind that DNS is usually done using UDP. Uh And like we talked about in episode one, that was reinforced by the fact that a lot of networks blocked DNS over TCP because that exposed some of the vulnerabilities for zone replication and um, the buffer overflows. So all of it's doing UDP, which means that it's, inherently much easier to spoof you don't have to figure out the the sin and and um the any of the sin numbers it's Uh just the transaction id and the source port and the transaction id is a 16-bit number and the source port is a 16-bit number together they're 32 bits and that's kind of hard to guess within you know the span of a transaction right yeah now one of the problems with this is that most servers, most clients, didn't randomize the source port at all. They would always oh, really? use, yeah, they would use port 53. Mm-hmm. Now, I bet you the reason for this, this has always been what I've assumed the explanation for this is, is that back in the day when you had IP chains and other stateless firewalls, you had to write a rule for both the traffic in and the traffic out. Right. If both the source port and the destination port is 53, it's easy to write a rule that allows both. Yeah, that makes sense. So I assume that's the reason for it, that everything tended towards that so that it makes stateful or stateless rules easier to write. But that's just a guess. But the sort the fact that the source ports didn't randomize was recognized by a guy named Dan Bernstein in 1999. Who was he? One of the bears? No, no, that's the Bernstein bears. This is Bar- Bar- uh, Bernstein. Is it? Wait, wasn't the isn't the Bernstein bears? Or, no, it's the Bernstein. What, what, is, what bears. is that like multiverse theory? Yeah. Is, is it the, the Bernstein and then the Bernstein? Yeah, Bar- everybody is? thinks that they read Baron Stein, but it's Baron Steen. See, I was the opposite. Like, or I thought it was the opposite. Someone told me it was Baron Stein. I was like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure it was Baron Steen. <laughs> but, huh. But he's, but this is Dan Bernstein. And, okay. uh, um, and he went on to write a, one of the more secure DNS systems. Um, and in some DNS servers, the transaction IDs weren't as random as they might be. This is a recall to the same problems that we had early on with nmap and the fact that source port randomization or, or sorry sin randomization was very low mm-hmm. allowing for similar kinds of collisions 
So if you can get a client to make a bunch of known queries, it was actually pretty easy to forge a response. In fact, um, generally it could be done in a matter of seconds. Oh, really? Yes. Well, so you have this forged packet and that's great. Well, what else can you do by just, you know, getting the, res getting the response of, uh, from that name? Well, it turns out that you can include extra records in your answer. Mm, okay. And for a lot of DNS servers, they'll just take that as a more recent record and put it in their cache. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you could go, you could get some, some client to query one.google.com, two.google.com, three.google.com in sequence. Mm -hmm. And you spray out your responses. And nobody's paying attention to DNS responses that don't get received. So, you know, you can just make this happen. Well, you're answering for google.com, which allows you to append to your answer a new name server answer for google.com. Mm. <laughs> now, you could also do this with DNS zones to the top level domain and take over dot com. Oh, that's for as long as the TTL remains in that cache. Right, right. Now, as it turns out, some of the DNS servers that were affected by the source port randomization problem weren't as affected by this as they might be, because instead of just taking the additional answer and sticking it in the cache, it would only do that if there either wasn't a cache entry there or that cache entry came from another appended answer. They got the answer directly, they, you couldn't overwrite it. But if they got it as another answer, you could. Hmm, okay. As it turns out that MX records tended to be received as additional answers when people asked questions about a domain, when the uh, query was about the domain itself. So you could overwrite the mail exchange. Mm, okay. Which allowed you to get into the mail traffic st stream. And mm. this was well before anybody really used um, TLS for transiting SMTP right, or right. SMTPS or anything like that. So it would all go through in the clear. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dan figured this out, tested it out, and said, this is bad. Mm, yeah. And so we called up Paul Vixie because he's Dan Kaminsky and he can do that or he could do that. And Paul Vixie, as we've talked about in the previous episode, was one of the four maintainers of Bind, the ER DNS server, the DNS server that was kind of the basis of it all. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> so um, they called up Microsoft. And Microsoft was good enough to host this giant summit of some government folks, some other industry folks to discuss, oh God, what are we going to do? The internet is going to be broken. Mm -hmm. Right. So they hatched a plan. First, they figured out a kludgy, kludgy, kludgy fix, which is, as I've already teased quite enough, this is Chekhov, uh, Chekhov's kludge, they randomized the DNS source ports. Chekhov's kludge. <laughs> We're going to have merch with that on it. Chekhov's kludge. <laughs> so they rolled out the patch on the 8th of July saying, hey, 
we're not going to give you any details. Just patch. Everybody patch. Everybody has to patch. To right. quote Paul Vixie, everything in the digital universe is going to have to be patched. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's always good when they're just like, just patch. No, no questions. Patch, patch, patch. Now, they're going to give the full explanation mm-hmm. in Black Hat in 2008. So just about a month later. Unfortunately, Thomas Patnick of uh, Matasano, which is a which was a security consulting firm in Boston, hmm. posted the explanation on July twenty first. Oh no! No, they took it down pretty quick and issued an apology. They thought that it had either been seen in the wild or somebody else had released the the um, the information. It hmm. uh, I, I wasn't actually able to find the archived apology because I didn't look hard enough, I was running up against deadline to do this recording. Right, right. But like, I knew it was by mistake um, or not by mistake. They, they did it on purpose, but they thought it was because the, the, that the cat was already out of the bag. Right, yeah, yeah. And then, then they took it down and presented it uh, in Black Hat 2008. I was there um, when that happened. Oh, nice. Uh, I even got in early enough to have a chair. Um, <laughs> But it was packed as much as the the, the con would let them pack, pack in. Everybody wanted to see this. Um, and he showed in the presentation that they had evidence that uh, uh, Dagno, I believe, was, was the company that produced some evidence that it was being exploited in the wild. Mm, okay. But most of us patched and we lived to see another day. But to me, this was considering how late in, in the game it was and how widespread the issue was, this is probably the worst bug we'll ever see. Right. But like I said, to fix it, it was a kludge. Mm-hmm. Source port randomization only got us to two to the 32nd. Um, and if anything reduced the number of actual bits useful to this, we still had a problem. Or if we had some means of doing it faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whether we had a bigger shotgun or a better shotgun to to get spoof packets out there. Both good for zombies. Yes. And we create zombies, although a different kind of zombie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It would still be a problem. So we needed a more durable fix. And at the time, there was no DNSSEC. So somebody said, you know what would be a good answer to this? (laughs) DNSSEC. So uh, this was actually one of the big impetuses to, for internet engineering to get off its ass and sign and start to put out DNSSEC. And the, key, the DNS root keys were signed in 2010. And when they sign those keys, the whole, every time you do a key signing thing in a PKI, it's called a ceremony. Uh, and there's usually some means of recovering the root keys, especially in a very large public key infrastructure, which this is. It's not an X509 like we discussed in the CA episode, but it's a public key infrastructure. There's an right. infrastructure and trust involved. Um, in order to, so the problem with the public key infrastructure or, the, or one of the weakness points, the brittle points of it is that if the root gets screwed up somehow or gets lost, you have to reissue everything kind of all the way on, all on down. Yeah, exactly. So there's mechanisms for recovering a key in case you have a catastrophic hardware failure. Hmm. And in DNSSEC's case, those root keys, the recovery 
material were given to seven recovery key shareholders, and Dan Kaminsky was one of them. Like it just vaguely reminded me of Lord of the Rings. Seven seven to, keys to for the internet seven kings. DNS nerds. The root key was trusted. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, this is a very important responsibility. Um, it, especially if you know we used DNS sec, which is only kind of true now. <laughs> <laughs> so this lets us talk about DNS sec and a bit about how it works. So every domain that's running DNSSEC has two types of uh, DS key records. One is for a key signing key and one is for a zone signing. Okay. Okay. So the zone signing key is what actually signs all of the resource records. And every time you query a DNS server that's running DNSSEC with the DNS, uh, the I want a DNSSEC answer, set, it'll mm -hmm. give you back, in addition to the answer, an RRSIG record. Okay. And the RRSIG record is the digital signature of that record. Okay. So as long as you have the zone signing key, you can validate that that record came from the same DNS server. So now zone signing key to the resource record, you've got those tied together. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the key signing key, zone signing key. It would seem like you'd only need one of those to sign those records. Well, turns out that they actually did some slick thinking here. Because that resource record is going to be in somebody's cache for some amount of time. If you rotate the zone signing key without having multiple ones valid at the same time, you could invalidate uh, a cached record. Right, right. So it is actually standard practice to have at least two zone signing keys active at any particular point in time. Okay. Usually you they're they're kind of, you know, going for let's say a month and every organization's different, but you know, you you have one that that their concurrent period is 2 weeks and then, you know, the old one drops out and a new one comes on and those are two hmm. are concurrent for 2 weeks. Yeah, right. In order to val and in fact, I think that a method, a model like this, going back to a thing that we were talking about with Mimi Cats and the rotation of the Kerberos, um, the Kerberos key information, the Kerberos TGT user, it could benefit from a similar system. But Microsoft didn't build something like that in, and it's kind of it's kind of difficult to retrofit. Yeah, yeah, like that ship has kind of sailed, and yeah. It'd be, it'd be awfully kludgy. I mean, which, you know, kind of, kind of Microsoft's game. So who knows, yeah. maybe. But the point being that, that this is a way of solving that particular kind of problem. There are known solutions for making that kind of thing work. Uh -huh. So within the context of this, you, you would need to sign both of those, those zone signing keys with something. And that's where the key signing key comes into play. So... Because you control the key signing key, you can rotate zones, zone signing keys as much as you want without contacting your provider. The key signing key you're keeping tighter control of because the digest of your key signing key, check some hash of your key signing key, is kept as a DS record by the name server that delegated your zone for .com. You know, it's com if your zone is you know, example.com. Mm -hmm. So 
In addition to your name server record, your NS record, they have a DS record. That is the digest that allows people to validate the key signing key that you're providing with your DS, with the DS record, with the KSK, the key signing hmm. key. Okay. All right. So now we can validate everything coming from a DNS server because it controls the keys and is creating zone signing keys and the, and you can validate the the keys that are on that DNS server and you have the delegation from your delegating name server, your top level domain. All right, well, as we discussed in the first episode in DNS, those are still delegated from the root level. Mm -hmm. So the root level DNS servers all have a DS record associated with them that allows you to, vol to validate the root. And that's provided in the root hints file. Okay. Now, used to be you only put the root hints file on a DNS server. In order for DNSSEC to work, every client needs it. It's basically part of your DNS resolution library. Hmm, okay. Because all of those cached records from root on down, when you're validating DNSSEC for a given answer, you're actually the your caching server actually provides all of the records in the chain to you, to your client. Mm -hmm. So that your client can validate the entire chain, every resource record, every RRSIG in the chain. And that's how you can trust a DNSSEC answer, even if you don't trust the caching name server. Hmm, okay. That is basically how DNSSEC works. Yeah, I have not really played around with it much. Um, I think it comes default in uh, free IPA, which is mm -hmm. you know, the Red Hat version of... Uh, or the CentOS downstream version of uh, ID Max, mm -hmm. which I guess we don't have anymore because we don't have CentOS. But because um, I, I think, uh, you know, that comes with bind under the hood. And I think DNSSEC mm -hmm. was enabled by default. So I ran into issues when I was trying to um, use that because, you know, obviously, like if I didn't enable DNSSEC on like everything, it, it broke. <laughs> so I had to just go in and disable it because, you know, I was not prepared to like enable this across the board. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're using like, dot local or internal stuff, then mm. you need to figure out how to sign your internal, uh, your internal roots. Cause if you've got, you know, foo.local and that's got its own DS records, it's, mm. you have to add that to the hints file for everybody because there's no, you're not getting a delegation record from, from, from any of the root servers for your dot local yeah, yeah. TLD. Um, yeah. And I think at the, at the time I, I was just trying to get a trust uh, built between uh, free IPA and my AD. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I don't want to look into like setting up DNS thing and like all this crap. I was like, eh, disable. So uh, I should mention that one of the great tools for validating DNSSEC, seeing how your domain is working with, the, with DNSSEC is a tool called DNSViz. And that's at dnsviz.net. It's provided by Sandia Labs and, and a few other folks. It's, it, it's a free tool and it, you know, go there, put a domain in it and it'll show you all the resource records. And if there's any problems with the crypto that they're using, or if the uh, records line up, I know that uh, yeah. the, the first domain I managed, we ended up having some real problems with our, the rotation of our zone signing keys because we were using an, a, uh, um, we were using, well, I'll just say it. We were using an F5 uh, global traffic manager, which managed all the keys and signing itself. And they got out of sync between our two regions. 
and it broke the DNSSEC validation on one side or the other, depending on which, which record uh, you got. And uh, if you want to do some validation yourself, you can use the dig tool plus DNSSEC will give you the RR SIG responses and let you do some playing around. Um, again, some of the stuff that I did had to do with testing both UDP and TCP responses. Right. For the last thing that we're going to get to in this episode, which is the security problem introduced by DNSSEC. Hmm, okay. So one important thing in DNSSEC is that if you ask for the answer to a host resolution to or a name resolution hmm. that doesn't exist, you have to provide a response anyway. Oh, really? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't just like time out when... No, because hmm. then somebody can spoof a response. Right. So the protocol for this is NSEC3, and it provides an RRSIG response saying, I have no answer for you. Hmm, okay. Now, here's the thing. You can make a DNSSEC query in about the same number of bytes as a regular DNS query using UDP. And you're using UDP, so spoofing is relatively easy. Right. So what you can do is if you've got a victim that you are trying to hit with a denial of service attack, is you can spoof a DNS sec query to a participating DNS sec server. And by participating, I mean, anybody that will respond with an NSEC3 response using UDP. Mm. So you're spoofing your victim and you're asking for something that doesn't exist and the DNSSEC response. So the query goes, hits the DNSSEC server, and that uh -huh. formulates a response. Now, the packet you sent out is maybe 200 bytes. And the one coming back is, you know, a kilobyte, maybe one and a half kilobytes, okay. depending on certain factors. And that's going to your victim. And you can scale this basically as much as you want, as, or at least as much as the DNS server you're hitting is throttled. Mm, okay. And if the downstream system you're hitting is a large network, you can use all of their IPs, as long as you're <laughs> coming from a network that, that can deal with the spoofing. Um, so this is a DNS sec amplified reflection attack. And it's not the easiest thing to not be the, like configuring your server to not do that is actually, or at least wasn't the easiest thing in the world back when I did. Mm, okay. What we managed to do in our particular situation was we had a firewall that would that would let you set how big your 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 UDP responses could be. Hmm, okay. And otherwise it would it would it would require TCP. Hmm. So we've managed to find that all of our regular responses didn't exceed a certain size. Right. And the NSEC3 was always a measurable amount bigger than that. So we set our uh, the threshold on our firewall to be above our regular responses, but below the NSEC3 response. Hmm, okay. And because we were able to do this, because we managed to have the components in place and we were able to figure out that, we were able to um, 
provide NSEC3 responses, but only through TCP. Hmm, interesting. And so our server couldn't be used for a reflection amplification attack. This sounds like a lot of like kind of like trial and error. Trial and error, um, packet captures, and mm -hmm. there was a little bit of trial and error, but I'll, but I was able to get pretty close to that pretty quickly, just because oh, okay. I had. Well, so I, I wrote up a a very complicated uh, DNS sec uh, test script that tested uh, DNS sec for a bunch of different resource records in both TCP and UDP um, with various uh, constraints on on the uh, on the size and stuff like that. It was okay. It was a crazy thing, but I, but because I took a packet capture of that, I was able to pretty quickly uh, come up with what those what those thresholds were based on the packet capture. Gotcha. But only because I had a pretty com I I knew all of the names and I had a pretty comprehensive test set of everything we were going to respond with. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do not recommend as the strategy <laughs> for dealing with this problem. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, did did you? learn a little bit about the deeper mysteries of dns yeah yeah i'm gonna have to like play around with it a little bit more not, not dns but dnssec itself yeah like some of some of the records like yeah like i was saying in the, the previous episode i've just never used like like mx records and stuff like that or never even do about like the srv records until i was looking into like you know ad stuff and then like Oh shit! These are all really important, and like yeah. everything will everything will break if I don't have these. Like, you know, because like if you if you go into you know Active Directory DNS, like you could you know expand it out and see all of these records, and you're like, what the crap is all this? And turns out very important. Yeah, um, and also in Active Directory, they they are in Microsoft land. Um, if you get a DN a DHCP lease. I believe the default configuration is for it to provide back to DNS um, its hostname and its reverse record. I think that's a default behavior. I, I know that yeah. it's possible to do that at the very least. I think uh, I'm trying to remember because it's been a while since I've actually joined a Windows system to the domain. But I think joining Windows systems to the domain, you could specify that like they, they just get enrolled immediately into DNS. Yeah. And like you get all those records and everything. Whereas like for Linux, um, I join all my stuff using SSD and Realm and stuff like that. So yeah. I have to remember to go in and create that DNS record. I believe that there is a tool that will do that can do it from the client and using the same call as the uh as Microsoft uses. I don't remember exactly how that works, but I do believe that it's there. There probably there probably is. I'll have to look into it because I just recently discovered um there's actually a setting in your sssd uh, configuration that you can just tell it to um allow you to use uh the change password command on linux to modify your ad passwords Ooh! because i had spent like two or three months looking into tools um to give like users the ability to reset passwords um one of them is there's a free tool out there called pwm Mm -hmm. Which is based off of, uh, I think it's a NetIQ product. Okay, but it, it it is my god cumbersome to like configure. Like it, it's an enterprise level tool, and it's like it also runs on Java, and it's just kind of uh, a huge pain in the ass. I'm a very anti-Java person at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. Like I was like, like do I, do I really want this? It's like it's like Java and PHP, and I was like, man, come on. But um, yeah, once I found that with SSD, I was like, oh, okay, because it turns out. 
a lot of those like password reset tools are only <laughs> geared for Windows systems. So yeah. they'll only install on a Windows server. And I'm like, I don't have a bunch of those. So like, like yeah, you got to give me an appliance or something. But not many, not many do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the continual frustrations. I mean, people to always talk about, you know, the Linux desktop is only a few years away. But what I've always thought has been the really important thing has been the Linux directory services. Mm. I, IP Max is pretty powerful or, yeah. you know, slash free IPA. Like when I was playing around with it, it can, it does a lot. And in fact, it ties better into Linux systems, um, especially if you're using like a full-blown desktop. And if you want to go the whole PIV smart card route, um, it will actually tie your user cert to like the username and you can see that when you log in uh, sort of thing. Whereas tying it, Linux with PIV back to AD and the certs, um, you kind of get funky things depending on the, um, you know, the uh, display manager you're using. Mm -hmm. when, when, you're, when you're going to log in and stuff, like sometimes it just won't display a username or it's just like, welcome, like just like gibberish. And you're like, crap, I don't know how to like, you know, get this to work. Yeah, well, I think that we'll probably go into some of the rest of, or some more of this kind of stuff in your next episode, which is about Active Directory, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. So I'm going to leave everybody with, with this piece of advice. When you're troubleshooting and things aren't connecting, check DNS and make sure you're grabbing your DNS logs. You might find them useful one day. Mm -hmm. Very true. <laughs> Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.